Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the vault into which all new planning information is deposited and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. A councillor has withdrawn from defending an appeal against the refusal of 900 homes after lawyers advised they cannot, in quotes, defend the indefensible. We'll explain what happened. An elected member, come public affairs consultant, has been found to have brought his council into disrepute. We'll find out what's behind the ruling. And another councillor has been removed from a planning committee for passing a document not part of the planning papers to colleagues. Again, we'll dig into the detail. And in our deep dive section, we'll be examining what we can expect from Liz Truss's premiership. By the end of the show, you should know enough to cope with any awkward questions from your boss. So, time to put on the harnesses. Ready to lower yourself in? Okay. Well, here we are again. Mm, It's still a bit quieter than usual. Probably the calm before the usual storm of September announcements. Yeah, that's true. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, my first item is our most read story of the past fortnight, and it's about a council withdrawing from defending two planning appeals for applications totalling 900 homes after being advised by legal experts that some of its grounds for refusal were baseless and they could not, in quotes, defend the indefensible. So Wealdon District Council receives two large housing applications from developers that its planning committee rejected against the advice of officers. Following appeals lodged, the council announced last week that it had withdrawn its objections following legal advice from planning barristers that warned that it would be unlikely to succeed in defending the appeals and would face large financial costs. Okay, so what were the applications and why were they refused? The first application was from developers Gleeson Land and Ryden Homes and sought outline planning consent to build up to 200 homes on unallocated land west of the town of Hailsham. So it was refused in February on highways grounds that it would have a severe impact on local roads. The second application was from landowners Peter Robert Vine, and it saw outline consent to build 700 homes, a new medical centre, a school and a community centre on an allocated site in Lower Willingdon near Eastbourne. And for this one, members of the Council's Planning Committee refused it last year on highways and transport issues again. But they also had concerns about the site's location and the effects of development drainage. But they've now decided to back down. Yes, that's right. The council said in a statement that it has withdrawn its objections to the two planning appeals following extensive legal advice, which saw the authority, in quotes, told some of its original objections have no basis and would be unlikely to succeed with the authority facing large financial costs. So it said that at a meeting of its planning committee south earlier this month, uh, councillors were told by independent legal experts they, that they could not defend the indefensible. And following this clear and firm advice from lawyers, the council will not offer evidence in each appeal. There's also a uh, statement from the council's leader, Anne Newton, who also holds the planning portfolio. 
And she says, it is with a very heavy heart that the council has had to withdraw its representations to defend these two appeals. We've taken advice from the very best legal experts who told us they cannot defend the indefensible. She said the planning barristers had advised there was no evidence to support the refusals on highways grounds in both cases. And the other reasons for refusal for the second scheme, according to the legal advice, was that pursuing these would not be justified. So it sounds like they've had a recommendation from their officers that they should approve the scheme, but they've ignored that recommendation, paid for some expensive legal advice, who, who, who told them also that they, they've got no grounds to refuse the scheme. And so now they're having to back down in the appeal. So it sounds like a um, a very expensive alternative to um, accepting the officer's advice in the first place. Yes, that's right. Uh, and we know that there's always a, a greater risk of losing an appeal where members refuse an application against the advice of officers. And in some cases, the council has to pay the developer's costs if the inspector thinks it has behaved unreasonably. Some of our listeners may remember research back in 2018 by planning consultancy Litchfields, which found that refusals of applications for more than 50 homes that go against officers' advice are over 60% more likely to be overturned at appeal compared to refusals where a recommendation is followed. And the research recommended that councils should seek independent advice where there's a disagreement between the planning officer and members on a technical issue and that authority should also allow for a cooling-off period when these disagreements arise, during which they can seek impartial advice before the refusal is then confirmed. And this is actually something that some councils already have in place, this procedure. Yeah, that's quite interesting, because if you're going to seek legal advice, the point being that you might as well do it before you've issued that decision and, and the appeal process has begun. Yes, that's right. I think it's to, to avoid going down the... Um, the appeals route, by which point it's it's too late. Yeah, We also looked into this issue again last autumn, following a, a spate of councils losing appeals after refusing applications for large housing schemes on allocated sites and then paying out cost awards to developers for unreasonable behaviour. I mean, the case that the, the two applications that we've just been discussing, one was actually on an allocated site and one was on an, an unallocated site. And at the time, practitioners we spoke to said they believed there'd been a, a recent rise in, in cases where large housing schemes and allocated sites had been refused. And they said this was due to many planning committee members not feeling a sense of ownership of their local plans where they were adopted under a previous administration. And in some cases, wanted to make populist decisions. And in this case, Wealdon Council has clearly decided that the risk of defending the appeal is not worth it. OK, um, so tell us about your second story. So my second story is about a councillor stroke public affairs consultant who ignored official advice from officers by participating in a planning committee meeting at which an application from one of his employer's clients was under consideration and he was then found to have brought the local authority into disrepute. Okay, and what exactly was the councillor found to have done wrong? So in November last year, the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead's Development Management Committee, they have split committees for different parts of the borough, was considering a planning application submitted by the house builder Carla Homes for 80 homes. And the plans have been recommended for refusal by planners. But according to minutes from the meeting, a motion was put forward by Conservative Council Ross McWilliams to approve the application, contrary to the officer's recommendation. And in putting forward the motion, he acknowledged 
the concerns raised by officers about flooding. But he argued that the council had to meet its objectively assessed housing need for affordable housing. And he said that greater weight should be put on the scheme's provision of affordable housing. And at the time, the councillor was an account director at communications consultancy BECG, which has worked for Carla Homes. And the motion was passed, which meant the application was approved by the committee. But following this, it was then called in by the Secretary of State and it was subsequently withdrawn by the applicant. But then the allegations about McWilliams' conduct in relation to the application was made by a Liberal Democrat councillor and 19 members of the public. Okay. And am I right in thinking that there were, this led to him having some specific charges put against him, one of which he's been found at fault on and another couple of which he's been cleared on? Yes, that's right. So the complaints alleged three breaches of the council's code of conduct and the council looked into this and McWilliams was found to have breached one of them, which was bringing his role and the local authority into disrepute and then he was cleared of the other two. So what were the two he was cleared of? The two he was cleared of was a breach of requirements to disclose interests and using his position improperly to the advantage of himself and others. Okay, that's quite interesting. So he hasn't been found in breach per se of, of not declaring his uh, not declaring an interest when he should have done, and he isn't found to have improperly secured a benefit for himself or presumably his clients. So in what way did they say he'd... Um, brought the council into disrepute. So the council's report on this, which was considered by its standards committee, said that McWilliams, who actually stepped down from the planning committee in January, had been warned by the council's monitoring officer on a number of occasions to not take part in the planning process in relation to the application. And it said that a member of the public, aware of the fact that this advice had been given, would have a reasonable expectation that this advice would be acted upon. And by failing to act on it, McWilliams risked bringing his role and the local authority into disrepute. And the um, the investigating officer concluded that having decided to participate in the planning process despite the firm advice he'd been given by the monitoring officer, Councillor McWilliams had failed to make an appropriate statement of clarification at the meeting. This resulted in an adverse impact on public confidence in the probity of the planning process. According to the report, the Standards Committee voted unanimously in favour of finding McWilliams in breach of the Code of Conduct in relation to bringing his role and the local authority into disrepute. It's interesting, because on the one hand, it, there's something slightly confusing about it, isn't it? Because they say there wasn't an appropriate, he didn't make an appropriate declaration in the meeting, and yet he was cleared of the charge of not having declared an interest. So that bit's slightly confusing. But the other bit that seems very strange, you would have thought a public affairs consultant would feel the need to be be seen to be absolutely beyond reproach in terms of sort of keeping a clear distinction between his, his role at a public affairs firm and um, his role at the council. So it seems very surprising to continue to go ahead and participate in the meeting when the official advice from the person responsible for advising on those matters at the council was not to take part. It seems fairly extraordinary that he, that he went ahead and did that. Yeah, I, I guess it's one thing if, if he wasn't aware of the rules. But on this occasion, yeah, he was explicitly told by the monitoring officer not to take part in the um, planning process. I think that some of the stuff I've seen about this is that he, you know, he was advised, but he thought it was 
only advice and um, and decided to go against the advice. And uh, and I suspect there are quite a few other public affairs consultants who are sitting on council committees around the around the country. I, I guess the um, you know, if there's a lesson for them, it's follow the advice, even if, you know, the advice isn't officially mandatory, because otherwise um, you could um, end up in hot water. Yes, yes, best to be safe than sorry. I should probably add that the Standards Committee decided that, given that the other alleged breaches in the complaint had been dismissed, and it felt that Councillor McWilliams' actions were likely a result of his passion and enthusiasm for the expansion of affordable housing provision in the borough, rather than intentional deceit, it would not be appropriate to impose a sanction. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to say that there is um, clearly a feeling that they had to sanction him, but also that um, that although his approach had been, hadn't been acceptable within the, within the council's framework, that um, there was no personal gain being sought. So yeah, obviously that's, that's important to note. So McWilliams is actually the um, council's cabinet member for digital connectivity, housing opportunity, sport and leisure. And in a statement, he said he was delighted to have been totally exonerated of any wrongdoing regarding the disclosure of my interests or improperly using my position to advantage myself or others. So that's referring to the two uh, allegations he was cleared of. And he added that he'd always endeavoured to hold myself to the highest possible standards. And this is why he resigned from the planning committee earlier in the year following the, um, the investigation. At the time, he said, I deeply regretted any resident losing faith in the planning process, especially if my actions had anything to do with that. I stand by those statements and can respect, if not entirely agree with, the findings of the Standards Committee. Fair enough. So he was exonerated um, on two grounds. He wasn't exonerated on all three grounds. But um, that area of um, people who are both councillors and public affairs consultants, it is a um, it is an interesting one. And I think it's, uh, it is one where people in that position do have to be very careful to not only correctly, but be seen to act correctly. Yeah, especially if they're sitting on planning committees and determining applications. Absolutely. Okay, and then we've got another story um, about a, somebody on a planning committee getting into hot water. Can you um, tell us about that one? Yes, my third story is also about a planning committee member accused of wrongdoing. In this case, the councillor was removed from the planning committee of Baber District Council in Suffolk for handing details of a previous scheme for the same site of the application being considered to another member during the meeting. Okay, so what's so bad about that? Well, uh, members were discussing an application at the committee meeting last month for a four-storey retirement home with 42 apartments in the town of Sudbury. It had been recommended for approval. According to a statement from the council, during the meeting, Councillor Sean Dawson passed details of what it called an earlier alternative layout for the site from a previous feasibility plan dating from August 2020 to another member of the committee. It said this document was not part of the planning papers and did not form any part of the application before the committee. The meeting was immediately adjourned so the council could investigate any procedural irregularities and to ensure any decision reached over the application was fair, transparent and legally sound. So presumably what they were worried about was if people start distributing information about a scheme that's before the committee, which is um, which is not part of the official planning papers, the committee might make decisions on, um, on unsound 
grounds. And um, I guess that was that was a danger if this was a, a an old version of the proposal, which uh, which didn't represent what what was actually being proposed to the council now. Yes, it's not actually clear from the story what the breach was. It looks like um, that there's a danger that members, committee members, could be misled if they're um, taking into consideration a previous scheme that's not actually the one in front of them. Okay, so once this problem had been spotted, how did the council respond? So an investigation was carried out by the council's monitoring officer, which included one-to-one interviews with every member of the planning committee. And um, according to the council, it said it was now satisfied that the integrity of the committee had not been compromised. And those members of the committee who saw the document accept that it is not material to the application before them. One committee member has, however, been removed from the committee until further training on the planning process can be provided. This means the application can now be rescheduled to be heard by the committee in full. So the councillor concerned, Sean Dawson, who's a Conservative member, will not take part in further committee meetings until further training can be provided, the council said. And it added that she does not regularly sit on the planning committee and was at the meeting as a substitute for another committee member. Okay, interesting. And uh, another example of of an infringement by a councillor of, of the correct process. But do you think it would be complacent to say that actually one thing you could take away from both of these cases is that there is still pretty close scrutiny of whether planning decisions are being taken in a you know, scrupulously fair way and that even relatively minor infringements are identified and penalised and that that should actually be a reassuring message to people who are concerned about the, the planning system being robust. Yeah, I think we have two examples here of where councils have taken very swift action when there's been an alleged infringement and have looked into it. And um, I mean, it, it, it is a sort of quasi-legal process. And from my experience, reporting on planning meetings is that council members on the committee do take it very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And um, not every councillor always does follow the rules, but it's not something that, generally speaking, seems to be accepted or uh, there do seem to be um, mechanisms in place sort of allowing those kind of, preventing those kind of bad practices from becoming you know widely embedded yes that's right okay many thanks john and of course more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk see you later to talk about your quirky story of the week but now i'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive bye for now Okay, so now I need to find my way to another corner of Room 106, the part where comment from consultants, lawyers and professional bodies about the priorities facing the new Prime Minister is gathered. So I'm just wading my way through the waist-high piles of paper to find planning special correspondent Joey Gardner. Ah, Joey. Afternoon, Richard. So uh, you've been the the fortunate person who's been charged with sort of sifting through what I'm I'm guessing is sort of huge volumes of... um, of comment on this? Well, I've uh, been wading through the paperwork and all of the noise and the and the tweets and the uh, commentary. Absolutely. 
trying to find out what people are saying about what the incoming prime minister is is talking about about planning. Fantastic. And can you just 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 for starters, can you can you remind us about the key planning changes she's proposed in her campaign? Well, probably the most eye-catching pledge that we've had from uh, Liz Trust so far is her pledge to abolish, in her words, the top-down Whitehall-inspired Stalinist housing targets, which obviously brings immediate questions for any self-respecting planner of how exactly that policy might be implemented and what that actually might mean on the ground when that is translated into real kind of hard policy. Um, She's also spoken of wanting, in a similar kind of vein, of wanting to avoid another war with local communities on planning and about the absolute importance of community control on planning. So all of these things, I suppose, one could slot into the uh, pigeonhole of um, trying to allay community fears over planning and suggesting that she she wants to be on the side of, uh, I suppose, in the cliche, the Shire Tory concerned about, about housing numbers. However, at the same time, she has also pledged to create opportunity zones, is her, her phrase, which is also described as investment zones that have simplified planning regimes. And she wants, again, in her her terms, sites ripe for transformation across the country that have lower taxes, reduced planning restrictions and red tape. So these would be areas one presumes that would be linked with the levelling up agenda, potentially, that could be and transformed potentially through development corporations or similar bodies to freeports, potentially. I mean, we would await to see but certainly areas that will be identified for accelerated development and deregulation. I suppose the other most eye-catching planning announcement she's made, or or planning promise rather she's made, is a deregulation of planning to solve the current nutrient neutrality issue that's dogging planners and, and house builders and developers, and which so far... I think probably most in the sector would say that the government efforts to solve the problems have uh, have fallen some way short of what's required. Okay, I mean you might characterise it as promising very tough planning restrictions on areas where there's high demand for development and removing planning controls in places where there's very little demand for development. You could characterise it like that, although I mean she hasn't been clear about where these opportunity zones would be and it does immediately beg the question of exactly where those those places would be and I think if she thinks that somehow she's going to be welcomed with open arms in areas of the country uh, that are less well off to completely rip up all planning rules and see a planning free-for-all I'm not sure things will quite work out like that. And certainly in terms of the nutrient neutrality issue, I mean, that cuts across both well-off and less well-off areas. In fact, I would say probably the, the majority of those areas affected by nutrient neutrality issues are actually in very high demand areas of the country, uh, large parts of the South and Southeast are covered by the nutrient neutrality issue. So the extent to which she promises planning deregulation to solve that issue 
that would be planning deregulation in high demand areas. And in terms of how urgent these priorities are for her, which of those priorities, you know, can we expect her to sort of treat as the most urgent? And, you know, how much change might we expect in the short term? Well, I think this is the million dollar question. And I think the answer is that uh, Liz Truss herself, I think, is very unlikely to prioritise housing or planning really very much at all before the next general election. If you think about the issues that she has on her plate in terms of the energy crisis, in terms of Ukraine, in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, in in terms of everything the government's facing, I think it's not uncontroversial to say that housing and planning will come down relatively far down that list. The way it's been characterised to me by insiders is that her team is thinking of things in a kind of two-year plan to get herself re-elected. So anything that can help with that is something potentially that she is interested in and interested in thinking about prioritising. Now, it's quite hard to see housing, how uh, planning interventions really are likely to help particularly in that time horizon. Now, that doesn't mean that the government as a whole won't do anything on planning. It just means I think it's hard to see Liz Truss as Prime Minister putting, you know, a huge amounts of political time and effort into pushing these things. Liz Truss's government as a whole, I think, obviously there, there will be an agenda on housing and planning. She will install the Secretary of State. As I speak to you, we remain to see who who that is, although Simon Clark is strongly tipped at this current point. I think the expectation is at this point she won't be keen to prioritise doing anything or the government won't be keen to prioritise doing anything that will put it in conflict with its backbenchers and therefore might jeopardise this pathway to a potential election victory in 2024. So anything of the priorities that we spoke about a minute ago that potentially would get backbench support might well uh, come forward in the in the medium term. So maybe the removal of top-down targets of the 300,000 housing target might come forward because that's probably popular, but possibly some of the other things which are more deregulatory and potentially likely to be more controversial may not be prioritised at this point or just may be something that is felt as coming after the election or earmarked for after the election. Okay. And um, and what about the priorities she's inherited, the things that Boris Johnson's government were working on, and you know, in particular, policy and legislation that's going through the system, such as the levelling up and regeneration bill and the promised revisions to the national planning policy framework. What are the implications of her accession for all of that? I think broadly the same criteria apply. So as long as the reforms have broad political support, there's no reason to suspect that they won't continue. And I think really the exercise that Michael Gove went through in the in the last session of Parliament to rework the planning reforms was largely 
an exercise in ensuring that those planning reforms had largely widespread support throughout the Conservative Party. So most of what remains in the levelling up and regeneration bill, you know, that bill has already been stripped of parts that were politically controversial. So at the moment, no one that I've spoken to has indicated that it's clear that there is anything that is is definitely going to be stopped or removed or reversed that's remaining from the um, from the Johnson agenda a key issue i think there is some controversy over the centralizing move as some people characterize it of bringing in national development management policies and uh, some are seeing whether the new secretary of state whoever that is whether the new secretary of state continues with the move to setting up uh, new national development management policies, which is contained in the levelling up and regeneration bill as a a kind of a key test, really, of whether Truss's government will be keen to continue to reform planning or whether it will just simply be interested in taking the path of least resistance politically. Okay, uh, that's really interesting. So you, you you talked a bit about what she said she's going to do to um, unblock the housing that has been kind of stopped up by the advice on preventing nutrient-related water pollution. So she's made these high-profile comments promising to sort of sort out the problem by cutting Brussels red tape. Uh, how easy is it going to be for her to follow through on that commitment? I suspect it won't be anywhere near as easy as it may have sounded like during the campaign to make that promise. I mean, there was very little negative comment that came back after she made that comment, and it was reported positively in the newspaper that she made it too. And the, the house building sector has has responded very, very positively to those comments. And after all, it's an easy thing to say. But after all, we've we've just had a summer in which the the issue of of water pollution and water purity has been really quite extraordinarily high up the political agenda and it, the information i'm getting back from the, from insiders is is people suspect that actually taking out these nutrient nu- neutrality requirements could actually be politically very very difficult to get through indeed it's seen as the likely mechanism although Liz Truss hasn't spelled this out, but the likely mechanism and one that has already, as I understand it, been considered by government and, and ruled out by the previous Johnson administration because of its how politically controversial it was likely to be, was putting through primary legislation which, which would remove the requirement for environmental impact assessment for certain schemes within certain thresholds meaning that you know certain housing developments just wouldn't have to meet nutrient neutrality requirements at all but the feeling is that that any attempt to do this would would cause a huge parliamentary battle even with the majority that the conservative party still had and would be in in the words of one political insider weaponized by the lib dems in local election battles and in by-election battles, and the calculation would have to be whether politically this would be seen as as actually worth it. So I think the jury's out on whether Liz Truss will actually follow through on this one. Certainly, there is potential if she wants to make 
quick progress on planning. This is something she could do that could actually make a difference before the next election. This could free up the system, but it would not be without a political cost. Yes, you feel that the the same people who the Conservative Party are worried about because of their opposition to large-scale house building in their areas, you know, many of them are likely to be concerned about taking away rules that protect their rivers from the impact of development. Indeed, and potentially joined by other campaigners as well who are, who are not directly interested in housing issues, but who are interested in wider environmental issues as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that, Joey. I mean, anything else um, you want you want to add about um, the implications of um, Liz Truss becoming Prime Minister? Not really. I think at this stage, we are just awaiting with bated breath the appointment of the, the next Secretary of State. And I think that is going to be the key moment when we we get the signals to, as to the import that Liz Truss attaches to this agenda and to the direction that she wants this agenda to go in. Speculation has been attached to Jacob Rees-Mogg and Simon Clark around this role. Uh, It very much seems to be settling around Simon Clark at the moment, and that would appear to send things in a very different direction than if it it did actually go to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Okay, well, thank you very much, Joe. All very interesting. I will um, leave you to continue wading through the paper. I hope you manage to get out before it reaches head height and that we see you uh, in Room 106 again soon. Fantastic. Great to see you, Richard. Right, now to find John again so he can select his reader's choice, a story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being something that's going to affect most of their working lives. John. Hello, Richard. Tell us about this story. Well, last week, listeners will remember that we talked about an enforcement case that went to the Court of Appeal concerning an accountant who built Britain's biggest man cave without consent. This is another very unusual enforcement story, but the homeowner in this case appears to be um, more sympathetic, I think. So it's about a report in the Daily Mail last week that a 65-year-old man who has lived in a shipping container for 30 years has been given six months to leave because he did not have planning permission to use it as a home. The article says that former tip worker Stephen Gibbons has lived at the site on his farm in Newport, South Wales, since 1992 after getting divorced. Despite his claims that everyone knows I'm here, Newport City Council says he's been living there without notifying them about a change of use and issued him with an enforcement notice as a result, ordering him to revert to its proper use as agricultural buildings. And last year, he appealed against the council's enforcement notice, claiming that the dwelling should be immune from any enforcement action due to the length of time it has existed. So our listeners will no doubt be aware that with a planning breach, if a period of time passes, then there is a, a rule that says it, it can be immune from action. But last week, a planning inspector found in the council's favour, and Gibbon says he has lost everything as a result. Okay, that sounds uh, a bit of a sad story. Quite often, there are some sort of human stories, aren't there, behind these sort of, I guess you know, potentially comic, comic-sounding um, planning disputes, but. Um, 
there's a sort of sad human story behind it. But uh, anyway, interesting. Thank you very much, John. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes. We'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Goodbye.